Hello, critics, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Okay, I got a few announcements, and then we will get into your questions. First thing is I want to give a... Um, uh, shout out to my latest uh, Patreon supporters. I've not done this in way too long. I have been a little negligent with my Patreon. I will say that straight up. I um, was getting a bunch of rewards and stuff that have been backlogged together this week, and I got to get those. I, I, anyway, the, the logistics, but it is being worked on. Um, but I wanted to, by name, give some uh, shout out appreciation to some of you guys because it's been really awesome, some of the signups lately. Uh, Jamie Lavelle, Ronald Fleming, thank you very much. Uh, Evis, um, we had uh, Jill and Mark Turi, of course, bumped up. Thank you very much, Mark. Uh, Robin and Martin Bernoulli, Robin Watkins and Martin Bernoulli, thank you very much for your pledges. Okay, I wanted to thank you guys by, in, uh, by, by name on that one. Really, really appreciate it. Um, now, the other thing is uh, we have not been having for a couple weeks, I think I have not been doing flash answers. I am soliciting if you have any flash answer, short answer type questions, you know, sort of rat-a-tat-tat kind of things, go ahead and send them to me. You can mark them as flash answers in the email. I judge some questions as, oh, yeah, this is flash because I can answer it very quickly. Uh, as opposed to others, which require more, you know, more depth or detail. Anyway, so you can send those to me, same email address, askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Um, okay, then the other thing I wanted to throw out there is I wanted to put a little plug out there for the Critical Conversations show. I don't know that everybody knows that I'm doing this every Friday. Now, we skipped this week. Uh, this was a bit of a rough week for me, and I had some some ups and downs and wasn't feeling so great. <laughs> and uh, and so we did not do a Critical conversation show this week, but normally every Friday at six o'clock Denver time, Mountain Standard Time, we are doing the Critical conversation show and you can join me and my wife who sits right next to me here and even get Seven Cam from Seven the Wonder Cat, our little love ball of fluff who we show off every week. So uh, it's a chance for you guys to call in and actually talk to me, talk to Melissa, uh, engage with us on issues. Most of the time we have been just having wonderful conversation and I try to keep it fair and even for everybody and not you know, really get into people's faces. But I'll, at the same time, I am more than happy to have somebody call and challenge us on stuff. So uh, anyway, just putting it out there that that show happens and I wanted you guys to know about it. And I think with that, we are ready to rock. So let's get to your questions for this week. Vera Fox, I hear many ex-members use the expression, I was in trouble. What does this being in trouble mean exactly? Do you already know the consequence or could the punishment differ depending on the situation? All right, Vera, obviously you're referring here to Scientology and being in trouble as a cult member. And, um, and, uh, and I will speak to this more broadly than just Scientology, of course, but this is one of the things about, and um, and actually one of the things I've learned this year in, in my uni studies has is, tra is trauma bonding or traumatic bonding. And this is a phrase or, or an expression that's used to describe a kind of behavior 
um, that actually kind of this is another rephrasing or, or evolution of an earlier idea of battered wives syndrome. Uh, this has to do with, uh, you know, interpersonal uh, violence or domestic violence situations, but it also applies in cultic situations. Gangs, extremist groups do this exact same thing. And what it is, is it is a back and forth of punishment, reward, punishment, reward. And it's not just conditioning. We're not just talking about, you know, putting people in a Skinner box or something. We're talking about a an ongoing intentional pattern of behavior and you 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 dish out uh, a little bit of reward in between a whole lot of punishment usually um, but it's see but it varies not at the beginning at the beginning of the relationship it's all roses and unicorns and bunnies and flowers and everything is wonderful and there's not a lot of signs or red flags of, of bad things but as you get sucked into it and it's the, and this is in relationships and it's in cults same thing you get drawn into it with all the wonderful love bombing all the you know you're so wonderful you're so great we're soulmates we're meant to be together this group is everything you've ever wanted you've been looking your whole life for us and now we found you and we can be together and it'll be awesome you know this these lines get used right and you get drawn into this thing, but then the punishments start and you're in trouble. And the thing about being in trouble is that the, the leverage it, it inherently has is that it will uh, be the counterbalance to all the love. And you're afraid that you're not going to experience the, all those rewards, those the, the, the love and the love bombing and the affinity or the the admiration and the compliments and the and the you know the ego boosting that you get which delivers a whole lot of neurotransmitters that make you feel great you know so um so this being in trouble what this means is that well ideally and this is the and this is actually almost a science this has been perfected to almost a science in Scientology is that the punishment that you'll get is arbitrary you don't know. It's you're not sure what it's going to be, and it's and it's in Scientology. You have a policy letter that Hubbard wrote that actually lays out a step by step series of of sequence of events that are supposed to happen in a gradually uh, more serious. You know, they're, they're gradually more more uh, intensive or more uh, meaningful punishments. Uh, all the way down to getting kicked out of the church entirely, right? Getting declared a suppressive person and, and expulsion. Uh, but before that, at the top of the list, you might have somebody commenting disparagingly about some non-optimum behavior on your part. And that's the extent of the punishment is somebody goes, hey, man, that's not cool. Or hey, what are you doing that for? Or something like that, right? And it, and it might be that you didn't do anything wrong at all. You just asked a question maybe you shouldn't have asked or you probed into an area you just shouldn't have probed into, or you expressed some sort of disaffection, or it could be anything. You did something that the group thinks or the relationship partner thinks is off or wrong, and now it's punishment time. And what the punishment, and the way the, 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 the most effective trauma bonding is when the punishment is unpredictable. 
And that is what sets you on eggshells, is you don't know how much trouble you're in right now. And as the relationship progresses or with the cult or with the individual, um, it will just kind of get worse and worse as time goes on. They be, the punishments become more serious. In Scientology, you know, you don't jump right to getting declared. You might first get a court of ethics, which is a formal, you know, thing. There's a sheet of paper. It's yellow. It's got your name on it. It says court of ethics. It's got charges on it. You know, it's this formal sort of thing. You're like, oh, my God, I'm going to court in Scientology. And the ethics officer or somebody will be assigned to carry out this court on you. And then you find out that you don't have a whole lot of rights and you don't have any real recourse to the court of ethics. And in fact, if the charges are brought, unless you've got a very good story to tell this ethics officer and they happen to be in a sympathetic frame of mind, you are almost automatically guilty of these charges. It's just assumed you did it. And that's the way the courts are run in Scientology, these courts of ethics, is you just show up and they go, well, you're charged with this and this and this, and here's these reports, and, you know, so here's your punishment. And it might be a week of uh, suspension from services. It might be having to pay some money. It might be having to go out and do, you know, 10 hours or 15 or 25 hours of, of an amends project of some kind which, you know, could have you scrubbing toilets or down in the, you know, the basement of the, the local org, cleaning things up for them, or, or, or. There could be any number of things you might end up doing. So that might be a, a sort of a lesser grade, you know, medium grade punishment that you might get. But you might get a, cor- a committee of evidence, COMEV. And that is, you know, we've detailed what those are on this on this channel many times. I've gone all the way down the rabbit hole on those on earlier podcasts I've done. So I won't have to go over all of that. But the Committee of Evidence is the big fact-finding body that you might face in Scientology. And if you're getting commived, as they say, you are definitely in a lot of trouble. There's no question about it. Now, you can request a commev, but that's a whole different matter. If you're having one served on you, you done screwed up and you're going to be facing the wrath. So again, unless you've got a really good story and you bring a whole lot of evidence to show, you know, that what they're saying about you isn't true and good luck with that in a kangaroo court situation like Scientology gives you, you know, so uh, it's pretty much a foregone conclusion that you're going to be in a whole lot of trouble. And by being in trouble, meaning you're going to have even worse punishments delivered out to you like a hundred hour amends project, 200 hour amends project. That's going to take you months to get done. You might have to get a security check at your own expense. They can order you to do that. And then you're going to have the, the, the sec check and you're going to have to pay for it. And you're going to have amends to do after the sec check is done because it's going to be done in such a way that you're going to be held guilty for your crimes that you get off in the sec check, right? Um, so anyway, all of, you know, the, the, what, what it means to be in trouble is where, what I'm trying to, you know, with all these elaborate explanations here is basically say, you don't know. And that's half the reason why it's so traumatic. You know, Hubbard actually writes in policies, and here's the double bind, is that Hubbard writes in his policies that justice should be swift, justice should be accurate, and justice should be predictable. You should know going in 
what's going to happen? He correctly wrote in one of his lectures or, or writings, Hubbard talked about how one of the things that is so crazy-making about our court system is the unpredictability of it. You don't know what you're going to get. And that's true. But it's 20 times worse inside the world of Scientology because Hubbard writes this and then, and then creates a justice system that is pernicious, that is arbitrary, that is completely up to the powers that be as to how it's going to be administered and how you're going to be dealt with. And that is what makes it so awful. And there's my diatribe about justice in Scientology and in other cults and, and being in trouble. So there you go. Jonathan, what would David Miscavige do if people hired private investigators to send outside a flag and follow him around 24-7 legally? Well, actually, this is a great question, but the fact of the matter is that David Miscavige wouldn't have to change much of anything about his current life or schedule because he's already set up things so that he can't be followed around very easily or stalked or harassed. In fact, he is a very, very difficult person to even locate. It's sort of, where's Miscavige, right? Where's Waldo? Like, you can't find the guy. It Inside Scientology, internally in the world of Scientology, David Miscavige's whereabouts and schedule are closely guarded secrets. Unless you know that he's going to be speaking at an event, there isn't any other venue or location where he's nailed down on scheduling, right? There's ideal org openings and there are the events where he goes up on stage and and does his, you know, two, three, you know, hour uh, you know, Nuremberg rally sort of things, right? Um, but when he goes, when he goes to those locations, when he goes on stage, when he leaves, he is surrounded. Those areas are secured before he even arrives. You know, it's very much. Well, it's not very much like the president, but it's sort of like that. Like, it's not anywhere nearly anywhere like as elaborate as what the Secret Service has to do. Everywhere, every time the president goes anywhere, there is, you know, two to three days of preparations that are being done everywhere he goes. Sometimes a week or two preps being done before the president goes somewhere. That's David Miscavige's life is not that elaborate, but he does have private bodyguards as well as Scientology or Sea Org security. And so there's a couple layers uh, that you have to get through before you're even going to be able to approach him. Uh, and that's if you know where he is. He doesn't walk around Clearwater. You know, he doesn't walk around outside the flag building. David Miscavige's life is a is is a cloistered, closed world. He can't just go out and do stuff anytime he wants. He doesn't just go down to the local grocery store when he feels like it because there are process servers who are actively engaged, even probably right this second, and trying to nail him down and find him and serve him. And he knows that. And he's in hiding from those people. That's David Miscavige's life. So um, so if you so people have hired process servers or private investigators to do exactly what you've asked, and they can't even serve the guy, right? They can't even get close enough to him to to, to locate where he even is much less get close enough to serve him with a piece of paper. So that's kind of the situation with Miscavige. And it's a, it's a very unenviable life. 
You know, David Miscavige is a craven, bad person. You know? <laughs> and, that, and the result of that is that you get to hide from everybody. Not a life I would want. Kiva Go. When looking through the court filing by the National Center on Sexual Exploitation in Valerie Haney's case, my attention was drawn to page four where they have a coercive control framework which is used to back up Haney's story. I went down the rabbit hole to find out where and when this chart originated. It turns out to be by Alfred Bitterman, way back in 1957, predating Robert Lifton's book. Yet Bitterman doesn't even have a Wikipedia entry. Have you heard of Bitterman's work before this filing? Should we see it more in academic works about Scientology? How do you feel about Valerie's chances of avoiding Scientology's arbitration, quote-unquote, with the support she's getting from real human rights activists? Okay, Bitterman. Yeah, I actually first learned about Bitterman's framework on the university study that I'm doing now on coercive control. Um, it was interesting. It was an earlier or parallelish sort of study with the with the time frame that Lifton was doing his study of of uh, POWs and and people coming out of Chinese reindoctrination camps, and um, and Bitterman was apparently you know studying similar or same folks I think out of Korea if I remember right, but don't quote me on that at all. Um, and his framework is remarkably similar in some in ways to uh, Lifton's eight points. Uh, you can compare and contrast them, and you'll find they they cross over very easily. I was actually very impressed when I saw Bitterman's uh, framework, and I went, "Wow! How come I've never seen this before? This is like you said. There's no Wikipedia entry, and it's because the work was done, I think, for the Air Force, and it was only published within, you know, sort of those circles." Um, and, and, but it is, it is, it's fascinating stuff. There has been a lot more work done since then on very specific points or aspects of a coercive control framework. There are many models for this that we've been studying, uh, over the last many months that I've been, that I've been, uh, researching this stuff in, at school. Um, and this was a framework that was presented to us as one of these, uh, one of these things. Um, now, as far as, um, you know, as far as why it doesn't have a Wikipedia entry, I could not even begin to tell you, uh, you know, because nobody's gone about bothering to do it. Um, now, as far as uh, Valerie's chances of avoiding arbitration, well, no, it doesn't look like that's going to be the case because the way from, from, from the analysis that we've gotten, and I did a whole podcast about this with Cyprian, a lawyer friend of mine. But from the analysis we've done, and it looks like the case was just so poorly presented in the first place with a lack of specific evidentiary, you know, like here this happened and here this happened and here this happened sort of thing. It wasn't presented in, in, with enough detail and enough evidence to be able to make the case that, um, that the arbitration was a sham and shouldn't be followed. I mean, they didn't make that case either. So her case kind of fell apart and it was and it looks like it was kind of bad lawyering on that now that she's got real human rights activists backing her i guess you're referring to this national center on sexual exploitation or, or i'm not sure what you're referring to there but um i don't really have a lot of hope for Valerie's case at this point now if she could bring a new case with new lawyers who actually 
do the work and get the evidence and put it together in such a way that it's just an unassailable case. You know, here's the policy, here's the evidence, here's the incident, which, you know, which demonstrates the point, and here's the next policy, and here's the incident that demonstrates that point, and here's the affidavits, and here's, you know, if they can really put this together in such a way that Scientology just could not uh, delay it and do all the nonsense they do, then I think Valerie would have a good chance of avoiding this whole religious arbitration nonsense. But it's pretty locked in at this point. And I don't know how they're going to get out of that. I'm just not sure. I don't know enough lawyering to know how to how to approach that or talk about that. But it doesn't look like this is going to avoid that issue. I think a new case needs to be brought, which is prepped properly, which is strategically sound, that actually thinks through how Scientology does its lawyering and is prepped to fight that specifically. And I we haven't really seen that in this uh, case with Valerie. So I don't know. That's what I can say about that. S. Rojas. Do Scientologists not believe the space station is possible? I heard there are many Scientologists who are conspiracy theorists that believe the moon landing was faked and that the Earth is flat. Is it true that this is because it contradicts their origin story of Xenu having done something to keep people on Earth and the only way to leave is to do the steps of Scientology's bridge to total freedom. Okay, thank you for this question. You know, Scientology's got some pretty wild conspiracy theories, and I have actually done whole videos breaking it all down. Um, so do check out on my channel, uh, Conspiracy Theory and Scientology and Recruitment, and you will find uh, two or three, maybe four videos where I've gone into great detail about what L. Ron Hubbard had to say, I think I've even read from the materials in his lectures uh, in earlier Q&A episodes, too. I've addressed this many times. But the reason I'm taking up your question here is because none of what you're talking about in this question is part of Scientology's conspiracy theories. So I wanted to uh, say as crazy as it might be with Xenu and the, and the loyal officers and and the, the galactic genocide and the body thetans and the ribbons of energy keeping everybody on planet Earth and all of that. Um, yeah, that's all in there on Scientology's um, cosmology, I guess you could say. But Scientologists are not flat earthers, and they do not believe the moon landing was faked. At least no Scientologist I ever met believed either of those things were true. Scientologists um, are not flat earthers because they're not religious fundamentalist extremists, and most flat earthers are. Flat earth comes mostly out of extreme fundamental Christian belief. Um, Bible-based stuff, that was the original flat earth society back in the 1800s, and coming forward now, you have some people in the flat earth world who are atheists or who are scientifically skeptical, and that's what brings them into flat earth but the majority of them are religious extremists. And, um, and the flat earth uh, narrative is driven by Bible-based literalism. And, uh, and, it, and it goes down to, the, the, the rabbit hole goes deep on this one into anti-Semitism and Satan and this kind of stuff. So it's, it's, it's really, really deep, crazy stuff. But that's, that's flat earth. That's not Scientology. In fact, if, if anything, Scientology's cosmology is the exact opposite because Hubbard directly acknowledges the reality of space opera and planets and galaxies and universes 
He talks endlessly about these things and about spaceships and other civilizations on other planets. And such a thing is simply not compatible in any way with a flat Earth mythology um, or with moon landings being faked, which is related. All of that stuff is kind of related. Scientology didn't go into any of that. Um, however, it is true, of course, that um, in, in your question, you did ask about Xenu having done something that keeps people here. Xenu and many, many other creatures, aliens, beings, including you, you know, thee and me, right? Like all of us have contributed over the, you know, millions and billions of years we've been around. We have all contributed to implants. And I've talked about implants lots of times, you know, so those are the mental uh, sort of pictures or ideas that are implanted in your brain or in your body, in your mind um, by, you know, pain, drugs, hypnosis, you know, all kinds of awful stuff. Trauma, basically, uh, is what Hubbard says, sticks these implants into your brain and makes you operate on them. And I keep saying in your brain, but I really mean your mind, because you can be implanted without having a body. And the most powerful implants actually happened while you didn't have a body. They were slamming you spiritually with energy waves and forces and fields, Hubbard says, that are way stronger than any kind of electronics that even exists yet here on Earth. That's literally how he described it, right? So you can see the smile on my face. It's a little silly. But uh, that's what Hubbard said. So um, so I wanted to address that. I brought this question up because I wanted to let you know that as crazy as Scientology's conspiracy ideas get, they actually are independent from flat Earth and moon landing hoax and, and that kind of stuff. Travis, what's the difference between a new religious movement and a cult? Okay, well, strictly speaking, a new religious movement could just be another kind of cult. Now, I think you're referring by cult to a destructive cult, and at least that's how I'm going to answer this question. Um, so I'm going to define, I'm going to narrow the target here a little bit because destructive cults is, are groups of, are any kind of group, whether it be religious or not, doesn't have to have a religious faith or dogma connected to it in order for it to be a destructive cult. But if we look at religious-based destructive cults compared to new religious movements, the differences are, are only a couple, but are very, very important. One of them is that a new religious movement, a valid, legit, what I would call a, a, a legitimate new religious movement, is not going to be abusive. That's not going to be part of its dogma or faith or strictures or punishments or any of that. Excuse me. Is you're not going to have physical, psychological punishment. You're not going to have torture. You're not going to have trafficking. You're not going to have the trauma bonding that I even described earlier in this video. You, like that kind of stuff, it can't be happening. If, if that kind of stuff is going on, if you have, in other words, coercive control going on, you know, an ongoing repeated pattern of isolation, manipulation, and control uh, in a direction of, you know, persecuting people for the enrichment of the central authority figure or charismatic leader or the group in general, because you don't even necessarily have to have a central leader in order for this stuff to go. But generally speaking, with a new religious movement, you're going to have some central figure, some authority figure, some deliverer of the, of the revelations or somebody who has created the dogma or created the belief set 
right? So that kind of figure can exist, and they don't have to be abusive people. They can offer, you know, you could go out in the world, and you could offer a religious dogma, uh, a set of rules, a set of guidelines, a set of principles to follow, a belief set of supernatural beliefs and ideas, and you could do all that on a take-it-or-leave-it basis. You know, I'm. Uh, this is what I think. I, th- I, have a, I have a method of worship here. I have a method of getting along with people better here. I have a, a, a 12 rules for life. I have, you know, whatever I've got, right? I've got these things. And you can read it and you can take part in it or not. I don't care. And if you had a religious leader who had that attitude and truly lived that attitude, then you wouldn't have a destructive cult. Now, if people come in and start subscribing to this and they're doing it wrong, okay, well, he would adjust, he or she, right, the leader would, would re-educate, readjust, you know, fix, fix whatever they're doing wrong. But if he did it in a positive way through education, right, not through indoctrination, not through thought reform, not through punishment drive, in other words, you don't have to sit there and give yourself 20 lashes, You don't have to sit there for hours and hours on end going through some traumatic hypnotic episode, you know, so I can I can induct you with, (laughs) uh, you know, post and pre and post hypnotic suggestions, you know, and I don't want any of that crap. Right. Um, That's what would make something a, a new religious movement that would actually be useful, maybe, or certainly at least not harmful. And that's really what I'm trying to say here is I'm trying to differentiate harmful practices from unharmful practices. And you can get together with your friends or associates or fellow, you know, new religious movement members out in the fields and and dance around the trees and pray to the sun god or eat berries and, uh, you know, and do some chanting or whatever. But, you know, but when it gets to the point where you're regulating behavior, controlling behavior with abusive style punishments, when you're engaging in thought reform of our way or the highway, that we're the best and everybody else is wrong, when you're starting in that down that road, that's when you're starting to move down the coercive control road. And that's what you don't want. And unfortunately, the temptation in these groups is to go that direction. And because the nature of religion, the nature of politics even too, if we're going to go there, but also the nature of competition, sports, you know, all of these things tend to bring out in us a competitive spirit, a domineering spirit, an us versus them kind of spirit. That's an organic thing. That's tribalism. And any group is going to have tribalism as part of its component because it's the part of it. it it's what happens when you assume an identity and you, when you assume a group identity, you're part of the tribe now. There's a tribe. It suddenly exists. And our tribe's better than the other tribe. I mean, immediately this stuff just starts kicking into place. So a, a, a valid, I believe, a constructive, positive new religious movement would actually be aware of these things and would take countermeasures, would take action to prevent us versus them thinking, to prevent extremist thinking, to prevent the whole, ah, it's our team and we're the best and our beliefs are the only ones, right? 
you would want to tamp that kind of thing down very early on. And, you know, through a policy of compassion, tolerance, understanding, it's, hey, it's not our way or the highway. It's everybody's got a way of looking at the world. And our way might be good for us, but it's not going to be for everybody. And we're going to have to be okay with that. And if you had a group that was that was putting, putting that kind of, of, of positivity forward and was operating on those kind of principles, then you would not have a destructive cult. But you would have a new religious movement. And, um, and that would be okay, you know, and, and, and persecuting those kind of groups would, would be totally off the rails. I mean, there's just no reason for it, right? If you have a, a group of tolerant, compassionate people who are just getting together because they see the world through a common, you know, through some common lens, and they're okay with that, and the practices that they're doing and the money that, they are, that they're spending is not you know, bankrupting anybody or, you know, being used in some twisted way, then, then, then it's all good. And the fact of the matter is there are groups like that. There are lots of groups like that. In fact, I'll, I'd even go out on a limb and say there are more groups like that than there are destructive cults. But we focus on the destructive cults. We focus on the abuse because it's so easy for people to slide into that kind of behavior. And it's so easy for narcissistic individuals or megalomaniac type people to form up groups like that with the express purpose of, of setting them up so that they can accumulate power and influence and money and sex and all of that. It's, it's fantastically easy to do. So differentiating these two things is not hard to do, but if you're of a mind, and this is why I'm always kind of beating the drum on this, if you're of a mind that all religion is bad, that all belief is bad, that any dogma is harmful, you're taking it too far, right? That's, that's over, it's overgeneralized. All religion is not bad. All belief is not bad. All dogmatic thinking even isn't bad inherently. It's, it's what you do with it, you know? And um, and I I'm a very very firm advocate for that. I don't I don't think that in, that religion is all a cult, and it's all awful. And it, and by its very nature, it has to be awful. It's just that we have to recognize that it's an that it's an area rife with abuse and ripe for abuse because of you know our nature and because of the nature of of what those groups are about. So. Anyway, uh, that's what I can say about that. Hamish Downey. This week you said that in order to get auditing, you need a messed body. But what about on OT7 when you're auditing thetans that are in the general vicinity, not just inside your body? Okay, Hamish, thank you for this question. Um, okay, so, okay, you need a body in order to get auditing because... You can't do Scientology auditing or auditing on the OT levels without an e-meter. You have to have the meter and the dial and the needle and all of that in front of you to know whether you're addressing the right things or not. The needle tells you, and the dial on the needle that, that moves the needle around, these things tell you how the case is going. And at the OT levels, on OT7, you go into an auditing room and you hold the cans by yourself. You know, you got the, the double can thing and, the, and it's a solo auditing session. And the meter is still being used to guide whether you have correctly 
connected th- uh, telepathically with a disembodied Thetan, right? With a with 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 one of your body Thetans. Now, the body Thetan may or may not be located on your body or in your vicinity, like you say, but you're the one who is connected through your body to an emitter that is registering charge that you're generating that might reflect that you have connected up telepathically with this other Thetan, but the meter is registering you, not it, and you're telling it you know, you go off, get another body, rehabilitate it, wake it up, do whatever the process is to to wake up those body thetans and get them off of you. But you still have to be connected to a meter in order for that whole thing to work and for you to know it's working. And you'll know that you're done kicking that thetan off of you and exorcising it because your needle will have this phenomena. It will be floating, as they call it, right? And um, and that tells you that you're done with your auditing session for that moment in time. So that's why I say you have to have a meter. Um, you can't just telepathically sit in your living room and contact the Thetans around you. That would be squirreling Scientology. That would be bad. We don't want to do that. Because without the meter to guide you, you don't really know what you're doing. So... Or you don't know if what you're doing is, is, is actually having any effect or not, is the theory of the thing, okay? Now, obviously, I say all this, and my, my end of question or end of answer caveat is everything I just said is total horseshit because the meter doesn't work the way Scientology thinks it does. But within the context of Scientology, that's the answer to the question. So I hope that clarifies that for you, and if not, let me know. Okay, everybody, so that was our show for this week. I hope my answers were satisfactory, educational, informative, maybe even slightly entertaining, I hope. Anyway, thanks for coming around, guys. Thanks for listening to me go on here. And um, thanks for your support for my channel and for my work. Um, Uni Studies will be picking back up this next week. Our next, uh, we'll be starting our second of three uh, trimesters, and I will have two coercive control classes that I am doing I will detail those in uh, future episodes and in the, I, I mostly talk about this stuff on the Critical Conversation show. So if you're curious about how my education is going, you can check out that show on Fridays. All right, guys, see you soon. Bye-bye.